Are you ready to begin? I am. <laughs> hi mary hey everybody hi, <laughs> this is sad girl syllabus a commentary on media through the ages each season we have a new syllabus to dive into i'm bethany and i'm mary and we are at two girls too sad let's du- let's jump into the syllabus <laughs> record scratch <laughs> every remix yeah Uh, (laughs) i cannot do an intro to save my life but i try we i you know we haven't abandoned it which i'm proud of us for um how you know the the sauce is real or whatever the expression is we don't do we don't have a pre-recorded intro i mean i finally learned my lines for the intro (laughs) and i can't say them right anymore (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, everyone, it's we're no longer reading off of a script. <laughs> we're like four lines. <laughs> I was born to be an actress. Um. <laughs> oh, two girls, too sad. Yeah, that's literally us. Um, welcome back to season three. And uh, the third episode, season three, episode three um civil war core <laughs> i is it is civil war core different from cottage core yeah kind of yeah yeah i would say like cottage core i was yeah i i think there's actually like there are definite similarities they overlap a lot yeah but to me cottage core is like sort of frontier core you know yeah, like yeah little house on the prairie home we went west yeah homestead which they love to use. They love to use that word, homestead. What's the what's the expression? All cottage core is civil war core, but not all civil war core is cottage core. Yes. Would that? Be yeah. The- exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Cottage core is an umbrella. <laughs> yeah. There's the like, how I think of it is, and we'll definitely get more into this. There's cottage core, civil war core, and then there is gone with the wind. Civil War Corps. Oh, yeah. That's like much fancier and you got your yeah. big ball gowns. Yeah, yeah. The Southern Bell situation. Mm-hmm. Exactly, right. Um, the other thing too that I was I was having a thought this morning about Cottage Core, and well, you sent me that a screenshot from the Girl in Calico video Yeah, that was like the quiet woman or it was like the little woman, the quiet which, woman. It's the quiet little woman, which is a Louisa May Alcott like anthology of short stories but the quiet little woman i had never heard of this before it's like a christmas sort of anthology interesting the quiet little woman i guess is about um a penniless orphan who (laughs) just wants a home okay home for christmas (laughs) so annoying i yeah i've never heard of that either um it what's annoying to me is like this did did girl in calico talk about the plot and that no, no, this, that was just a prop. Oh my was, God. That's um, what's annoying to me. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, the, so Girl in Calico listeners <laughs> is my favorite cottagecore influencer. She is, she's a young, she's pretty young, 
so I don't want to like criticize her too much (laughs) but um she's she's just a delight she has vlogs she has a podcast she has an instagram and she has this etsy shop which i think is generally how she makes her money Mm -hmm. um selling things like aprons to make you look like you're in little house on the prairie head scarves to make you look like you're on little house on the prairie and like home goods kind of stuff that are Mm -hmm. super retro but she that video that i'm talking about vlog was like where I took that screenshot was like, um, how to have a beautiful, simple life or something <laughs> titled oh my something God. like that. And she's always, she is always recommending like the simplicity of heart, simplicity mm-hmm. of material goods too. Um, learning to like have a pantry and a homestead and all these things. Um, but at the same time, right, I think she makes her living selling goods to people. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. like well, that people don't need. Creating the creating the myth and then selling it back to people. Right. Yeah. Right. And this is the case for a lot of these like homesteader type influencers. And they mm-hmm. love to wear these clothes. It's yeah, it's like cosplaying frontier. Um, there's real romance, like romantic romantic is you know what I'm saying. <laughs> romantic. <laughs> romanticizing um that kind of lifestyle which yeah is sort of silly to me because like the frontier life you know if you couldn't keep a larder larder um you're dead yeah exactly you know like if you didn't have enough food you're dead in the winter yeah and this one it's like all about like they really tie that that up with um morality like of course a good person a christian person um has these values and then of course there's also the like the cost and the time consumption that they they never really get into occasionally they'll be like just do what you can but also like there's a moral virtue to having your own garden to growing your own plants it's the implication of rejecting it's implying that that it is moral to reject material right the materiality and stuff and be less materialistic um yeah yeah. Um, so she is just, I, I'm always like, what's up at girl in Calico? What's she up to now? Um, <laughs> um, well, I, the, this morning, after, after I saw that screenshot that you sent me, also she had a, a bowl of popcorn next to the book. And I was like, this is inexplicable popcorn. But Popcorn um, is a major prop for girl in Calico. Really? It's, it's all everywhere all the time. <laughs> it's a popcorn. <laughs> bro um but the thing like cottagecore itself and this and this idea of homesteading and um and being on your own I don't necessarily reject that uh way of life I think that one of the horrors of modernity is um possibly how much convenience there is um Mm -hmm. like people don't it's it is true that people have things really really easy and we shouldn't take that for granted it's great to have things that are easy however there is something to be said for having the skills of growing your own food and right. like if you have the resources and the space um and the time to grow your own food or to learn how to cultivate a vegetable garden whatever that's great and that is a skill that absolutely everyone should have but 
I agree with you 100%. It's the moral, the moralization of it that is uh, suspicious. The other thing on top of the moral, uh, the moralizing is like, you can also, there's again, the implication of um, gender, extremely gendered roles and, and, and placing that, placing traditional gender values onto everything, onto this homesteading thing. And the other thing too, is that like, okay, the best part about um, progress, societal progress, is that you can still value um, homesteading skills and everybody can still do it. And it doesn't have to be gendered. It doesn't, <laughs> like you, there's, it's unnecessary right. to moralize and to gender it. And I, I would say on the frontier, on real homesteads, back in the day mm -hmm. uh those ladies were not just homemaking you know they were yeah totally the yeah yeah and so it's like silly like girl in calico for example is one of those people and this is literally something that she listed was that women should you should teach your children your girl children homemaking skills and boys durable traits oh right yeah I remember which is like that. is sewing not a durable trait <laughs> you know, but yeah, what's going on? it's, it's all, um, just so it's, it's superficial to, and you can totally understand that she's, um, what she's trying to do. She's trying to appeal and target. Um, she's trying to target very specific people. Right. And these are so like the homesteading in general, it's like most of these people, their homestead is it's a garden. Yeah, you know, it's a suburban yeah. house with a garden. Yeah. Um, which people have been always doing. Yeah. Um, and it's always great to learn how to do that, but do we need to like romanticize it that much? Um yeah. and actually I think it was Molly Lambert, the writer, um, kind of looked into it. And a lot of these like homesteader influencers live on someone else's land. They like um that is not really? their like like they shoot it from different angles to seem like they have like acreage or like space and they they don't they live on someone else's property or they were given that property but it's usually not very big as they pretend that it is yeah it's all it's all a set it's all a farce oh god of course like everything else is but um the other thing that really really fascinates me and that and that plays a part in it um like being able to being able to to like either rent property or live on someone else's property kind of thing um the thing that is so fascinating about cottagecore influencers in particular is like they there's this complete negation um or ignoring of the fact that they could not have their lifestyle without technological progress like the internet yeah. um on e-commerce um, right. there's this whole, the moralization of like, I'm a better person. You can be a better person if you homestead, but just ignore the fact that this is on YouTube, <laughs> ignore the <laughs> fact that like we're doing technological transaction, like, <laughs> right. Cause you'd believe them more if they were kind of one of those people who shunned most technology were off the grid, right. you know, right. and were totally self-sustainable or as much as you can be nowadays, but, mm -hmm. um, they're not. <laughs> at all mm -hmm. like I was like if you're really like putting this work into having a homestead how much time do you have to blog about it <laughs> you know yeah that's true it's true and and it's um 
and and there is it would be so it would just be a lot more satisfying or authentic um i have problems with the word authentic but it would be it would just be a little bit better i think if there was an acknowledgement of like i'm learning these skills for the sake of having these skills i do not reject modernity <laughs> yeah right and yeah it's a little walden pond ish you yeah know? like your mom's bringing you your laundry <laughs> thoreau we know we know what's really going on <laughs> we know it's all yeah it's a sham but um it's but it, it is really really it's interesting that this kind of that they have figured out how to monetize this kind of reenactment reenactment mm -hmm. has been around for decades but not necessarily monetized right um so it's so therefore it, it's a different kind of thing i guess reenactment and the cottage core influencer are two different things maybe yeah i guess okay so i was looking into it briefly but um reenacting wars has always been a thing you know uh -huh. for theater uh -huh. since the time of the greeks right um the time of the greeks <laughs> <laughs> whatever you know what I mean uh <laughs> since ancient Rome we'll go with that this time instead um <laughs> uh, -huh. uh but in the U.S. um reenact reenacting history and war reenactments really got popular in the 60s um as the centennial celebrations of the Civil War, I had always assumed that these reenactments would begin, like the popularity would begin with the American Revolution, but it really begins with reenacting the Civil War. Yeah. Um, yeah. And particularly reenacting the Confederacy in the South. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, this the whole cosplaying directly ties into the Civil War in the US. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of where we get the beginnings of it, really. Yeah. Yeah, and it's um well, it seems like civil the notion of a civil war in general is uh kind of crazy because you the it, with something with like the American Revolution, and this is this is a huge topic that we sort of closed last episode on, and we know now that we're gonna open this up more fully, the the proximity of the wars and fighting a war that is an ocean away versus fighting it on home soil. But the Civil War is interesting because like you have uh losers and winners, <laughs> and but like with the American Revolution, the losers were on the other side of the ocean, so you can just like ignore them and they and they can like you know, lick their wounds sort of in private. With a civil war, the losers are have to like continue living next to the winners kind of thing. Right. And I get the sense that um, a lot more Southerners have, have a more vested interest in reenacting um, from the role of Confederates um, as a way of like, uh, I don't know, having, like not being able to get over the 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 wounded pride mm. like like it's it's a very like it's to serve maybe a larger ego a larger collective ego of the southern because also and and of course when you're in the south you still hear um the war of northern aggression kind of right. thing um and there's always a like i don't i don't necessarily know if it's a victimization i i wouldn't necessarily call it that 
like we were the victims of northern aggression but then at the same time there's like a lot of pride in mm. reenacting confederacy stuff i don't know so it's it's just a it's a tricky tricky thing to look to observe <laughs> yeah Right. And there is like we were talking about with Antebellum and um, debutantes, again, that cosplaying of like, oh, the glorious Southern past, you know, like when we were wealthy. Um, So, yeah, is like, I think in some ways it's like reenacting this great tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to to their minds possibly I like the, mm-hmm. the idea is like this sort of weird ego thing yeah you know? and um and and yeah and I think that a lot of this like glorification of the southern bells and the plentiful like the economic abundance that mm-hmm. they that they lost and they feel like and they feel like it is a tragedy like look at what like the north de- like the this union economically devastated the confederacy and it's just like well yeah you were economically devastated because you cannot build your economy on slavery <laughs> that's not yeah. um like that's specifically why it had to be destroyed <laughs> yeah and like yeah you were rich because you weren't um paying for labor yes <laughs> yeah um so it's yeah that is um it's it's an interesting this reenactment is interesting at the same time though like i've i've known i do know people personally who have worked at like the gettysburg historic site kind of thing and um continue to i mean there's there's no question that reenactment reenactment is the nerdiest thing (laughs) ever um i do i love it though uh (laughs) there's a lot of discourse around reenactment that I studied in graduate school, but um, but I do know people personally who work or have worked at Southern historic sites that uh, interface with reenactments all the time. There's at Gettysburg, there's that famous like panorama of mm. like the, I don't know if it was the battle of, I guess it was the battle of Gettysburg <laughs> um, that it depicts and stuff. And they've recently redone that whole thing. And all of the interpretive signage has been rewritten. Um, mm to be a little bit to take to take a lot more perspective and un, to be a little bit more um uh unforgiving of the confederacy i guess mm. uh but there is something i think that i believe in the historic preservation like there is no doubt that reenactment is integral to historic preservation like to understanding understanding the um you know what it was like at that time ultimately be, like the hope is that you don't you don't do it again <laughs> right the hope yeah. is that you don't plunge your country into another civil war right <laughs> but uh yeah hope so <laughs> <laughs> we say in a very polarized moment <clears throat> um yeah gone with the wind is a perfect we have a lot of um movies on the docket <laughs> for this episode <laughs> I guess we can start with Gone with the Wind because that is very much glorious Southern. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is. And, you know, sometimes the movie begins with like, these views aren't our own kind of thing. And then it goes with that scroll of like the glorious Southern past that used when (laughs) women were women and men were noble, you know, like, yeah. uh, 
<laughs> I tried watching it again for this episode and did not get through it. No, I didn't even try. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it it's a hard. I mean, it's just. And when was it in the forties? Not the forties, the twenties. Shit. Um, it's Technicolor, so I think it's the forties. Oh, okay. Nineteen thirty-nine. Okay, cool. Um. So yeah, that is a that's a moment in time. Um. Yeah, where you're, where you see the you're past the Roaring Twenties, you're past the Great Depression, and uh, values are changing in America, mm-hmm. and um, and you it seems like it's a ripe time for people to desire this a romanticization of the Southern past or like our, our traditional values or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it's such a weird movie. Um, <laughs> it is. Cause yeah, it is it really like is. the Technicolor is beautiful. That's great to look at. Um, but it, it's a, it's a very strange movie with really unlikable characters pretty much across the board. Across the board. They all suck. They all Just like awful. in Weathering Heights, everyone's a bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone is a bitch. And they're like disaster capitalists, basically. Oh, yeah um it's just it's a strange movie obviously I feel like almost goes without saying incredibly racist um and it's odd it's like it's hard for me to even understand kind of some of the point of it yeah yeah there is it doesn't it it just seems like a like a precursor to um this reenactment yeah right craze yeah, or whatever it, yeah it's very much of that same like um yeah that same kind of ilk of yeah. like the glorious southern past yeah and uh, it's yeah. weird i'm looking at i'm i'm reading about the producer david selznick yes and trying david, to figure david, out david. what why he would have why he wanted to produce um, Gone with the Wind. Like he doesn't seem, it, it seems like his motives are not in line with what I was saying earlier about um, the South wanting to protect its ego or preserve its pride. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't, it doesn't seem like he, I mean, he went to Columbia and was born in Pennsylvania so it doesn't seem like he's necessarily like a part of that whole thing but right. I don't know I mean I, there's again it's like this um that was also a time I guess you could another thing you could say about it like this was during a time of great you're bouncing back from the great depression and you have you can make films you can make films with sound you can make them with color right and it's this um wanting to make a great war epic as we have seen throughout the, throughout the ages um war epics are the stories that people want to tell um so right. dramatic and selznick is um i mean i think probably for him above all is like making a huge picture yeah making this huge spectacle which obviously antebellum south is ripe for mm-hmm. um and then you have the 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 tragedy 
as they depict it of the fall of that kind of life. Um, so yeah, I think he's looking for that epic. He's looking for that big, big movie um, to show off and to, to have this big splash. This, uh, yeah. <laughs> I um fully on the Gone with the Wind Wikipedia page. I'm fully like in a Wikipedia hole. Um, <laughs> um, which I love, I love to do. Everybody loves to do it. Um, Wikipedia is funny because it's like being inside of a library where you just like go down like a bunch of different secret passageways. Um, but anyway, uh, and it's also funny because since it's so, this is an aside, but since Wikipedia is crowdsourced in terms of information, you can't, you don't get the, like, it is not deferential at all. I have found mm -hmm. that it is quite, <laughs> um, it's, it's, people really like show off what uh, their opinions and how they feel, you know, even though they're trying to just present pure knowledge or whatever. But as we know, pure knowledge doesn't exist. We all live in a subjective state. Anyway, <laughs> um, the lost cause of the Confederacy myth. Wait, how do, how do they put it? They linked, there's a specific Wikipedia page called um, the lost cause of the Confederacy American myth. Yeah. And uh it's just talking about it's it is an American pseudo historical negationist mythology <laughs> that claims the cause of the Confederate States during the American Civil War was just heroic and not centered on slavery. Um, that seems like a part of this um, spectacle. It seems like this again, this like larger argument made by the South and perpetuated by the descendants of um, of the Confederacy they need to they they their lifelong argument is that this wasn't about slavery this was about like our cause and stuff like that and so that is a spectacle right and i think in gone with wind i mean correct me if i'm wrong because i couldn't get through it um again i don't believe they ever call anyone that's working for scarlett o'hara a slave even though i think oh, they're yeah. even titled in the credits as servants um, but it, they are obviously enslaved. Um, and this is actually one of the few movies we're going to talk about that actually has black people in it mm -hmm. about the civil mm -hmm. war. Um, so it's, it's almost as if they never really talk about why the war is happening yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just about, it's, it's purely just to represent or depict this um chivalry the honor the traditional values mm -hmm. um and I think that there's something about that really took people's captured people's imaginations about the construction the reconstruction era right um and this idea of like uh um I don't know well cottagecore the power of cottagecore influencers uh, is is a perfect testament to this. Like people are obsessed with like rebuilding their lives, like rebuilding after a crisis. I mean, it's right. no it's no wonder that cottagecore influence comes at a time right after a co a crisis like COVID. Mm. You know, um, everybody wants to rebuild, or everybody wants to like build again, rebuild, reconstruct. Right. If I do this one thing life will be better for me. Yeah. And usually that's in terms of, yeah, rebuilding, reconstructing, reshaping. Um, I got with the wind. 
And it's, it's, uh, again, this is the resounding theme is that um, it's also the stakes are so much higher when <laughs> the war is happening on home turf kind of thing. Right. And, um, and so that's what makes the uh, that's what makes it so much more important about reconstructing and rebuilding like we have to like we like our our homeland was decimated and so we have to rebuild and um make it better again and it's this uh and it's a great like epic human drama it's a great story to be sure and this right. and i i this is so this season of sad girl syllabus is so american centric and so i want to like insert lots of um i want to insert as many examples as possible um but i guess <laughs> if i <laughs> I guess you could apply this sad girl sil syllabus analysis <laughs> to um, the French Revolution too. A French right. Revolution is um, there's so much turmoil in France, and there's um, there are stories and depictions of like rebuilding and the the dramas of the human drama that goes before, during, and after great wars like the French Revolution. Les Misérables is a is the epic of that as well. Flamers. <laughs> and they also have the sad wife. Cosette is a sad wife. Eponine is a sad girl because she's not the wife. Right. As she as she will always point out. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you forget it. <laughs> On my own. Um yeah so anyway but it's it's interesting everything feels like crazy this uh the stakes are much higher when it's um when it's a, a war that is on your on your home turf and mm. um yeah I guess I'm just saying that it's it's of greater value the story and the the myth that you build around yourself um and and it all comes back to this like sad wife theme of being like well because like the the men get the glory of this the the mm -hmm. ones who went to war and the ones who fought and like I I think that some people would be like you're lucky if you were a soldier who died because that meant you laid down your life for your country kind of thing and the men have this um have a very set role of being like I sacrificed everything or like if you come back injured you say like I sacrificed my arm for this for my country kind of thing and you get to live in that glory and so and then you have uh women being like okay well I am gonna since I am the homemaker then I will rebuild the home mm. yeah the reconstruct yeah reconstruction like a mini sort of mini ecosystem of what's happening Mm -hmm. in the larger society mm -hmm. yeah yeah and uh yeah yeah I was just gonna say like people you know people tend to think about um like the home is the building block of society so women mm -hmm. are like okay that's what I'm gonna what I'm gonna remake and stuff and again and I don't I don't have a problem with understanding like home and family being the building block of society. Um, I think that that is true. And you don't build a larger society without your smaller communities, but it's also uh, not, it's not required to fucking gender it. <laughs> like <laughs> it doesn't have to, it doesn't matter whether it's the man or the woman building that. Yeah, I know. Sometimes I get nervous that we're like 
I sound too like stay-at-home moms are bad or something like that, which is not at all the case. Um, right, it's right. just this very strange like moralization of mm-hmm. the genderization of yeah, these roles, yeah. you know, like um it's very odd to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it and and the most important thing, I, and also the other thing about modernity and the pro- and progression um and and the sort of like liberalist attitude that is that can carry you toward progression is like it doesn't have like it doesn't have to be so polarized as to mm. say like this um being a stay-at-home mom is bad but it but right what is actually beautiful about that is like okay if did you make that choice to be the stay-at-home right. mom and that's the most important thing and um uh and if you are able to freely make that choice then that is then that is great um so yeah (laughs) Uh, we love stay-at-home moms on this podcast (laughs) and i want everyone to know it uh (laughs) another like tangential thing um that i guess we could get into this is well no this is like after world war ii but uh the Mona Lisa smile movie. Um, oh my God. <laughs> Kristen, again, Kristen and Nicole are I all always everywhere in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, we really like, yeah. Kristen Dunst is always going to be present because she was in an interview with the vampire little women. Yep. Anyway, um, Mona Lisa Beguiled. smile. The, uh, no. Yes. Love her. Um, <laughs> sh- yeah. Queens. Queen sad girls. Um, Mona Lisa smile touches on that very specifically too, where there's this like, uh, what's Julia Stiles is like the character mm-hmm. who is just like, I don't want to go to grad school. Like I want to start my own family. And, and Julia Roberts is like, fine. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> she is kind of the Meg. If yeah. To bring him back to little women. Oh yeah. Little story. Women, which is our, no. our next movie. No, little, little women. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like more power oh. to the Megs of the world. Yeah. Um, maybe not Emma Watson as Meg, but <laughs> to the <laughs> Fuck that. Oh, that was so bad. I, had, I, I feel a little bad for her. I feel <laughs> a little bad for her. Because she was cast into the worst role ever. It's a bad role. It's... <laughs> I mean, you'd think Beth would be the most boring role, but Meg is the most boring role. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you can just really feel everyone else kind of acting in circles around her, you know? Oh, my God. I know. Yeah, I know. It's it's true. I mean, I think that, like, don't choose the one British actress who cannot do an American accent to save her life. Don't choose that for an American (laughs) like like an American and but also Florence Pugh Saoirse Ronan they all can they all do it they all do it they portray this but it's a very Americana early Americana film do not choose do not cast Emma Watson yeah because I feel like yeah the American accent she can do is like really modern yeah yeah can do it's like (laughs) sort of done um yeah it just doesn't it doesn't sound great um Anyways, Little Women. Yeah. I watched both the 90, the Winona version yeah. and the new and recent Greta Gerwig for this. Yeah, me too. 
so as opposed to gone with wind little woman is set in the north um and their father's off fighting for the union and i you know it's really only the first half of the story that the war is happening mm-hmm. and it was interesting to me watching both back to back because and from what i remember of the book <laughs> there really isn't that much conversation about the war at all no it's no. just that the dad is gone mm-hmm. and that they hope he comes back mm-hmm. and that's pretty much it yeah and i think that um the the Jillian Armstrong version from 1994 is um, maybe focuses on, focuses on it kind of a lot. Again, this reconstruction mm-hmm. thing or this like you get the sense that the weight, the meat of the story. I mean, what, one of the first lines in that is Winona Ryder saying necessity is the mother of invention. And it is about this like solving the problem of being five like it's the four sisters and, and Marmee and um, Marmee. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and it's like five women at home. How are we supposed to do this kind of thing? And, um, and the strength of that and being this, I felt like that 1994 version is much more about, is much more the women waiting at home. Um, mm-hmm. And like first, I mean, my personal opinion is how dare Greta Gerwig try to make, <laughs> try to remake an already perfect movie. <laughs> like what the fuck? <laughs> the audacity. Like just, and also the like, the the whole like non-linear time jumping. Yeah. Like going back, like just stop. Do not stop with these virtuosic moves. I hate it. Uh- <laughs> I would say, I get the hate. <laughs> I'm not crazy about the new little woman. I understand the time jumping though, because in the Winona Ryder version, the second half is pretty boring. It's true. Yes, that's true. I mean, it goes on forever. The, right. I mean, the story, the story is a lot. And I understand the time jumping too. I just like, but I, that is my own personal <laughs> opinion, whatever. Um, but I do think that the Greta, <laughs> the Greta Gerwig version does a good job of actually making it about these portraits of these women. Mm, and, yeah. um, and there's less of a women at home kind of feeling um and so I have to concede that <laughs> yeah that's yeah that's definitely true in the the 90s the 94 version 94 mm-hmm. um you really do see like a little bit more of the desperation um and what they're willing to do to bring money and you know like Joe sells all her hair mm-hmm. cuts her hair and sells it um and they're willing to work in these various ways they those women normally wouldn't be expected to Mm -hmm. um if they had a man at home right right in yeah i i guess it's just it was interesting to me how little they actually discussed the war how far it seemed away because they're in the north Mm -hmm. and i guess because they're in slightly more rural north too Mm -hmm. um but in the new version where I think the war is brought up a lot more. You have Marmy doing a lot more um, charity work where like she's right. giving um, blankets to vets or to families who have lost sons, um, which by the way, the civil war um, resulted in two, a death of 2% of the population. Wow. 
Isn't that wild? That's that so is crazy. many people. Yeah. Well, um, and, and going off of that too, I mean, that's why the funeral, the funeral industry started because, I mean, well, it started in the civil war because of embalming, but like embalming wouldn't have been mass embalming wouldn't have been a necessity without such massive scale of death. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I embalming wasn't, uh, embalming wasn't a thing until the civil war. And it was specifically because of Victorian funeral funeral traditions where you have a wake but um mm-hmm. especially if union soldiers were dying in as far south as um like north carolina or south carolina and then they'd have to go all the way back to massachusetts their bodies would decay before they could have a proper viewing a proper funeral so undertakers would go um and like on the battlefield embalm them so that they could get on a train and the body would still be intact okay wow yeah and then, but then it was easily monetizable. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and so you get the funeral industrial complex anyway, oh but yeah, God. massive, massive scale of death, right. like makes it creates the job of undertaker funeral director. Um, huh. And, but, and also, yeah, this like women are the nurses. Women are also like uh, helping families that have lost their sons or husbands. Right. Yeah. It's like, um, I feel like the, Greta Gerwig version really puts it a little bit more to the forefront. Um, the sort of the scale of the war, the impact of the war on these families' lives. Um, and Joe is also talking about how much she'd like to be a boy and that she'd like to be a soldier because she's looking yeah. for adventure. And that yeah. also to me is a little bit of Joe's like um, naivete and um, the lack of impact of them on the war because I don't if the war was closer I don't think you'd be like oh I wish I was a soldier um right but all that to say I think Marmy's politics are pretty clear in both of them there's a lot about sacrifice a lot about doing what you can Mm -hmm. for others who are in need I there's this one scene in the new movie that drives me out of my mind (laughs) do you know what I'm talking about (laughs) No, (laughs) I don't know. I can only imagine that obviously this is an incredibly white movie. It's set in a civil war, as we said. Most of these movies are completely white. (laughs) To an unnamed character, an unnamed black woman Mm -hmm. in Concord, Massachusetts, where they are, where they're giving out stuff to vets. this like sort of charity drive thing that Marmy's doing. She says she's always been embarrassed of her country to this black unnamed black woman who gets one line of dialogue. And in response, that woman says something like, there's a lot to be embarrassed for that you should still be embarrassed for. And Marmy's like, mm, I know. And the end scene. And it's just like, Greta. Yeah. Oh, okay. Come on. <laughs> That's cringe. You're like, I feel, I could only feel that this is like, oh, I'm going to get criticism for this. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to put in this like totally superficial line of dialogue that has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. Um, instead of actually addressing what the fuck the war was about. Yeah. Yeah. Also as if, come on, that these Northerners, even if they're anti-slavery are not also probably pretty racist. Yeah. Yeah. It's just. Right. Because. Yeah. It is, it is stupid. It's a, it's a total 2019 white guilt thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's a totally, sorry to interrupt you. It's totally, no. um, I would have voted for Obama for a third term kind of line. 
it is. Oh my God. It's really, really cringe. And, um, and to also, yeah, like that would never have like, sorry, that would never have crossed a white woman's mind in during during the civil war even if that woman was part of the union that would just never have done that i mean like the whole notion of white racial superiority like started in new york and boston like yeah and also like she i don't think she's embarrassed about her country i think she's she is probably pretty for the u.s she's literally fighting for its unification you know like i don't i don't believe that you just have to accept that you know like you're going to make a movie about characters that are yes. probably very fucked up yeah. from today's views and yeah. you need to accept that. And if you, yeah, exactly. And, and it doesn't need to be like, she's, it's just clear that Greta Gerwig is looking to be excused. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. That was my one. <laughs> like, it's just like, come on. Like that's oh, not an addressing of the situation. Uh, no. You know, you're not adding anything to this movie. I don't remember that scene. It's, I remember (laughs) in theaters being like, what? And then watching again, I was like, oh, Greta. (laughs) Poor Greta, I'm so mean to her. Um, (laughs) So am I, Um, it's fine. Florence Pugh's great in this movie. Yeah, I do, I do, she is great. I do enjoy it. However, I think that again, it's this like, okay, but then you like try to make her the young Amy as well. And you're just trying to like push the limits and like, it's this abstract acting thing that I'm just trying to. And I do kind of appreciate the nineties version because I, I remember reading the book and watching that movie and really, you know, loving Joe Mm -hmm. and like, oh, I'm a Joe, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but then when you watch it when you're older you're like just shut the fuck up like, yeah you are so like, obnoxious down. yeah and they're all kind of obnoxious in their own yeah. way and I like a little bit you know like they're flawed like Joe doesn't make the right decisions yeah and we don't need to like moralize always yeah. on her decisions yeah for sure I do like that you know in the new one the professor is hot thank god yeah that I had that same thought I've only seen it I've only seen the new one twice and yeah I I think that every time I'm like okay f- at least he's hot <laughs> the, uh yeah at least he's hot they like made him younger and hotter yeah and at, but although in the um Gerwig version he like has a French accent he's I know he, I think very he's not German. French instead of German which it's like yeah she was trying to romanticize it I guess a bit yeah I don't know um <laughs> Gabriel Byrne. <laughs> Gabriel Byrne doing that German accent in the 90s is like, it's pretty good. And it may, the age gap to me makes it a lot of a creepier relationship. Yeah, I think that that was, whereas like, I do think that it's more realistic that of the age gap. Oh, yeah. However, it's um, more relatable. Um, yeah. in the, and so that's why I find there's like this dissonance between like, okay, so you found a younger Professor Bayer, but you didn't cast two different actresses for Amy. I think that that's yeah. weird. And, um, and I was able to, like when I was younger and watching Little Women, I was able to relate to Amy a little bit better because I was her age when I was watching it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, and, and she was just, there are just things that like, you can't, you can't, when you're a, in your 
when you're like a 30 year old actress, you just can't embody an eight year old. Yeah. Like- and it's often seemed even when Florence Pugh was, even when Amy is really young, it often, it still seemed like Beth was younger. Um, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Beth seems younger the whole time, which also could be fine. You just need to make Beth the youngest sister. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Change it around. Change, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are some questionable choices in terms of, again, I just think that it was that Greta Gerwig was, was trying too hard, trying to be like virtuosic. <laughs> um, and again, it was already Susan Sarandon, like, come on. It was already a perfect yeah. film. Yeah. I mean, I love Laura Dern. Yeah, I know. I know. Love yeah. Laura. Yeah. She's still great, but like, yeah. I would have just turned the roles down. I would have been like, I'm not following Winona Ryder. I'm not going to do yeah. <laughs> I say that it's as like a, not an actress. <laughs> I would never do that. Um, <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> I did watch another Little Women adaptation. I went to the library to get the Winona Ryder one, but on the shelf next to it, <laughs> I'm showing you this, Bethany, this cover. And Ooh. is it, uh, what year was it made? Oh, man. This was made in 2018. Oh, so they kind of jumped the gun on Greta. And I will say it time travels. It goes back and forth yes. between both storylines. So Greta pretty much stole her whole idea <laughs> from <laughs> this little women adaptation, which, yeah, made in 2018. It stars Leah Thompson as Marmee. Leah Thompson's like in Back to the Future as oh. the mom Whoa. back in the okay. day. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, it... It is a movie. Um, <laughs> well, I would thought it looks very hallmarky. I don't know if you can yeah. see this cover. Well, and I'm there. looking at their, is it still set in the 1860s? No, it's oh. set present day. Um, so yeah, I am jumping us. I just had to bring this in because <laughs> so when you find library movies like this, you have to watch them. Um, <laughs> it's an obligation. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a Hallmark version of Little Women or something like this. But it turns out it's better. It is a Christian film adaptation of Little Women um, because Pinnacle Peak and Paulist Productions, Paulist Productions has a logo, which is a film reel turning into like Apostle Fire. Um, Pretty incredible. Anyways, yes, set present day. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It is pretty <laughs> chaotic, and I cannot recommend it enough. But wait, so I will... what's okay? Go on, go on. Tell, ask me, ask me away. What's the conflict? Like what? Unknown. Oh, <laughs> the dad is overseas. He like video okay. chats with them on Christmas. And wears fatigues when he comes home. Okay. They never say what war. So he's like a part of. Iraqi war, maybe. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> endless war, baby. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it is great. <laughs> that fundamentally changes everything, though, because you can't go on. Sorry. Go on. Sorry. Lori. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yeah. We didn't talk about the Lori changes. I know. That's like, t- yeah. Okay. We'll leave that. We'll leave that. But Lori in this is played, you know, in High School Musical. You've seen High School Musical set in Albuquerque. 
Um, <laughs> yes, we know. Um, <laughs> I don't remember what his character's name is in High School Musical, but he is the blonde one. Lucas Grabeel? Um, yes, he is Laurie in this movie. And he sings a lot. They make him sing a lot. <laughs> I'm speechless. Oh, I hate that so much. Okay, yeah. I hope... <laughs> This mic got a lot of rattling of the DVD case. Sorry, I had to bring a prop. Um, <laughs> um, it is. I mean, if you can find it at your library. <laughs> That's so over the top. It's fundamentally not the same story. If the husband is overseas in some where you cannot experience the destruction. I'm sorry, that is not the same. It is not the same. You cannot try to, you can't do that shit. Um, there is such a difference between uh, being, having to reconstruct your homeland versus believing in a war where you are not experiencing any of the destruction. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It's my biggest bone to pick. And, but also Lucas Grabeel, no, that's, no. Um, it's funny that he's singing though, because my, like, <sighs> Christian Bale and Timothy Chalamet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like two boys who like, um, like you can't be a sad girl without, loving both of them um <laughs> yeah it's true I thought Christian Bale was like the cutest thing and then on rewatching, I'm like wow Christian Bale has the thinnest lips <laughs> of any human <laughs> um and Christian Bale it's uh, it's like again again wait no why did I think that Christian Bale was an interview with the vampire okay he maybe should have been <laughs> I don't know. Uh, he, yeah, maybe he should have been. I think, well, like the Lori to Patrick Bateman pipeline um, is <laughs> like, I wonder if that is a pipeline that exists. But anyway, uh, <laughs> um, Christian Bale mutters and he like whispers. He does this like really like whispery thing with his voice register as Lori. And I think Timothy Chalamet is trying to mimic that, honestly. Mm. Um, because I'm just like every time yeah. with both of them, I, I love them both. Uh, <laughs> but every time with both of them, I'm watching it. I'm like, what, <laughs> what are you saying? I literally cannot hear you speak. Up. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but it's funny. And to think about Lucas Grabeel, like actually having to sing and project his voice is really funny. <laughs> okay. Last thing about this, this 2018 version. Um, the professor has a much bigger role because oh. that's how it begins. But I won't talk to you about how this beginning begins, but there's also a really great like Latter-day Saints production of Pride and Prejudice from mm -hmm. the mid 2000s that is also extremely chaotic. <laughs> but what I've learned from both of these things is that these production companies have no idea how college works, absolutely none, or how writing works and getting published. Um, cause that happens in both of them. Just no clue. Um, and refuse to do any research on it. Uh, but <laughs> the professor in this little woman, his name is 
Freddy. <laughs> Bear. <laughs> okay. Oh. Nice. And they're like, Freddy Bear. Professor Freddy Bear. <laughs> There's uh, people, people really, I have so many, I have so many opinions um, on this notion of remakes, which you know that I do. Um, uh, yeah. Remakes, reenactment, whatever. And people like, it is the folly of man to think that you can just remake a story into any time period. I said this in the, in the, in the, um, the first season of this podcast too about like timelessness and if you when a story is truly timeless it has it has a strong element of its own time like sorry but you can't yeah. take something out of um and and again this like uh, frederick bear is simply a name like no he's not he's <laughs> not freddie bear <laughs> yeah little women little women is an epic story of women waiting at home sad mm -hmm. wife themes galore and it but it's the reason why it is why it is a timeless um story is because it's like what do you do when your home the larger home around you is in total chaos and conflict and what do you and and it's a it's a great story of the strength of women um, and yeah, you just can't, you just can't remake it to fit with any war. Anyway. <laughs> I just had to reiterate that. <laughs> I tried. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, I'm, I mean, you might as well just make her like a single mother. Like the dad doesn't really, he doesn't really do anything once he returns in this movie. Yeah. So it's like. Why even have it? Oh my God. Wait, Bob Odenkirk. Sorry. Whoa. Oh yeah. I sent, I, when I was watching it, I was like live texting you the whole time that I was watching <laughs> the, new, the 2019 little woman. And I was just like, I forgot Bob Odenkirk fucking Saul. He's just trying to like get out of the like nasty lawyer typecasting spiral that he got himself into. <laughs> I think I told you this, but, um, when I saw it in movie theaters, when Bob Odenkirk walked into the scene, the, the audience cheered. They're like, yes, Bob, you know, like, yeah, I mean, I did too. I was, you know, like I was genuinely excited, but I was just like, what the hell? I can't. I'm pretty. Yeah. It was like, I didn't know he was in this movie. <laughs> so funny. Bob Odenkirk like begged my organization to, the, to like work with us. He really wanted to like be part of the community. Oh, of New Mexico. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he okay. like moderated a big panel discussion that we did a few years ago about like Harriet Tubman. Wow. Yeah. That's a interesting. Yeah. And kind of cool. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. Um and thanks, Bob. Um <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I guess that's the last that's the last comment that I have on the little women. Well. I feel like we should move on to another remake mm -hmm. or a set of original <laughs> and remake, um, which is sort of, to me, like little women flipped on its head. Um, <laughs> the beguiled. <laughs> yeah, the opposite of little women. The same, but the opposite. <laughs> exactly. 
evil little. It's like the upside down shadow little. Yeah, (laughs) shadow little women. (laughs) Yes. Oh my god. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. I. Oh whoa! And then another interesting parallel, like Sofia Coppola also like made the mistake of casting Emma Watson in an extremely American role. Oh yeah, I know. Because I was gonna say in my mind, Sofia Coppola can do no wrong. However, that was pretty wrong. Emma Watson yeah, it was. in the Sling Ring is wrong. <laughs> As Alexis Snyers. Yeah. I I had a lot of thoughts about that bling ring. And I was really invested in the storyline <laughs> because I loved the reality show Pretty Wild, <laughs> in which Emma Watson's character was yeah. in when she got arrested for the bling <laughs> yeah. ring. Um Alexis Myers. Um Alexis. Alexis has is now sort of an influencer. Yeah. yeah. Um she's like friends with Caroline like Calloway. A, yeah, she does a lot of uh I think like work with people in rehab and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Um, but I just to give that role to Emma Watson. It's also before we get into the beguiled. I do think you can tell from the bling ring and a bit in the beguiled. Sophia Coppola does not like people. She just oh, doesn't. She like doesn't. Them. No. And like, doesn't really have a lot of sympathy for anyone. Doesn't seem like it. No. And I don't blame her for that. I love that about <laughs> Sophia Coppola. <laughs> <laughs> The extremely pessimistic view is great sad girl recipe, or it's True. it's a it's a integral ingredient in the sad girl recipe. I am surprised that we haven't talked about Sofia Coppola on this before I because know. she is all of her movies about sad girls. Yeah, how has it taken us all this long to talk about her? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, she's also a Kirsten yeah. Dunst lover. Oh my god, yeah. I can't think of anything Um, else besides the Virgin Suicides, but I know there is other things. And Marie Antoinette. Oh, right, right, right. No. (laughs) Yeah, she loves, she loves the dunst. Who doesn't though? Truly. Uh, Yeah, truly. So the Beguiled though. There's two, there's the original. So it's based on a novel, but there's the original 1971 version that has Clint Eastwood in it. And then uh, Sofia Coppola's remake in 2017 which kind of turned it into like more of a gothic eh, sort of something gothic. Southern gothic yeah for sure more a little horror house than the 1970s version is like a sort of it's verging on the edge of being like a psychosexual thriller but yeah it's not but st- not deep enough into the 70s i think to actually do it yeah yeah, it, it feels like it it reins itself in yeah. from getting too out of control, which I wanted it to get out of control. Yeah. Like go for yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Cause I didn't I didn't make it through the Clint Eastwood one. I'll make that confession. I could not make it through. Um it was it was extremely long. Something that was great. And and this goes back to our again, the sad girl syllabus analysis. Um, something back, uh, like what makes something gothic is the vibes and the atmospheric uh, nature. Um, and I think that the Coppola version does that better. It, it 
it's a condensed um, a condensed film because you just get the tension and the horror from the vibes <laughs> from the atmosphere yeah. um and it's so and the way that it's shot it's so dark you can hardly like I was watching it on my <laughs> laptop and I was like trying to turn up the brightness I did yeah <laughs> I was like I can't see I anything can't see anything um yeah and so whereas like the um 1971 version is uh um it's way more played out. There's a lot more plot and it felt, it got boring. I could not, I could not do it. Um, I was also coming off of like a serious marathon of Cold Mountain and Last of the Mohicans. So like, I was too exhausted. I was trying to be a hero. Anyway. Uh... <laughs> We've watched way too many movies for this one episode. And that is why it's so long because, well, that's also the thing is like, everybody's making movies about yeah. Civil War about and, women at home in the Civil War. Yeah. It does seem to be the thing. Yeah, the thing. Yeah, but um, but yeah, that was my my main like takeaway too. Is I was just like, okay, this, um, yeah, it reigns itself in a little bit too much in the seventy one version, and um, and it's too focused on like dialogue plot, mm. where there's so much of that story that you can get at if you just use aesthetics yeah uh, coppola is the queen of vibes um <laughs> she, she is, is. Oh. she's very good at it uh <laughs> and uh, yeah i agree that the like tonalness of the 2017 one is um much better um there's some really interesting things happening in the 71 version yeah um i think clint clint eastwood such a weird actor um but (laughs) clint eastwood so clint eastwood plays a union soldier who has been injured and he is found by a young girl who's attending this like ladies school that has like four people in the south um who takes him to this all-girls school where they heal him and nurse him back yeah yeah Yeah. um there's a lot going on yeah. in the Clint Eastwood version. I think it's a little more direct that he is also trying to manipulate them. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to be part of the war. Um, he's also kind of a shitty guy. He, and yeah, he's more manipulative in the 2017 version that character is played by Colin Farrell, um, who I think is actually probably equally manipulative, mm-hmm. but again, Coppola sort of just hints, never lets you see yeah like really totally what he's up to yeah or his intentions which keep it very mysterious of like if the women are right to do certain things or not right um and I think like with the Clint Eastwood like just as an example he tells the headmistress in that one that he loves farming and he loves gardening and he has a great respect for the land and meanwhile that voiceover is to a flashback where while he where he's burning crops right (laughs) Um, (laughs) which is like, that was like pretty interestingly done. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I would love to know more of your thoughts on the beguile. I thought that Colin Farrell, I got really annoyed with him every time Mm -hmm. that he would, um, every time that he would be like uh, complimenting them and being like, I would love to have a drink with you. I saw right through it and I was like, shut the fuck up. You're just trying to preserve your own life. I got really annoyed or that was my um, first like impulsive thought or reaction. 
And, um, and so it was just like, you are really like trying to play it smooth because you just, you know that they can turn you over to the Confederacy at any point in time. And you're just trying to preserve your own life. And then, um, however, yeah, there are a little bit more, there are more moments where like when he is gardening, you, you just like understand like, oh, this is just like someone who really likes gardening and like he got a free ticket to America. And I don't, I, and again, since I didn't make it through the Clint Eastwood version, I don't know if Clint Eastwood is supposed to be an immigrant to America. Whereas like in, no, I don't think so. Have you read the book? Yeah. Cause I don't know. No, I've never read the book. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I don't know what the, what the true air quotes story is with that, if it's supposed to be, but it is to me, it's way more interesting when the character, when, when the, the man's the soldier's character is, um, an immigrant and you and it's easy it's way easier to sympathize with that and to say like he does want to just preserve his life just so that he can um make a new life for himself in in America uh and like and also that gives him motivation to escape the war um whatever Mm -hmm. but like Clint Eastwood is it's it is ambiguous Colin Farrell's portrayal is definitely ambiguous Clint Eastwood I I felt I was annoyed at Colin Farrell at Clint Eastwood's character I just thought that he was nefarious I just didn't it was it was past annoyance I was just like you're evil still um I mean he's off the back gross yeah like he kisses the little girl because he's like oh you're 13 you're 12 you're old enough to be kissed like he is gross and he has and he has significant rapist vibes and um and that's where this like uh, there's the, the, the tension in the 1971 version, the tension with the girls school is like, um, they're fearing being raped. And it's just like, we're just a bunch of women at home. We don't have people, we don't have men to protect us. Mm -hmm. Um, and there is a lot more like suspense around that. Like, is he going to rape them? And then, um, I'm not sure how well, the 1971 version does with with the sexual desire but in the Coppola version there it's so it it, again it's just so much more ambiguous like there's sort of you can sort of guess that there's like a fear of being raped and a fear of sexual assault and aggression but the sexual desire takes over way more and then and then the false accusation of rape too that um, right like it as it all climaxes it becomes a, a false false accusation and that adds to this that adds to the tension Mm -hmm. yeah he I what I thought was interesting about both versions um but I feel like stressed maybe more in the in the remake is that this little school is sort of an so feels so isolated Mm -hmm. like it's an empire to itself Mm -hmm. Um, and they're terrified of any invaders both confederate and union yeah because the confederacy kept coming around looking for a man you know like union soldiers who were isolated who were left behind or um or sympathizers or what deserters yeah. yeah um which clint eastwood might be um yeah and colin farrell also might be deserting the union right it's like it's hard to tell like were you just injured and left behind or did you actually desert yeah. um probably actually deserting yeah but um they are like really terrified of all of those men, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. invading their domestic space, invading mm-hmm. the home. Um, 
no matter what side they're on. And they do have a lot of conversations about our boys, like in the Confederacy and things like that. But slowly that fear grows for both Union and Confederate yeah. soldiers. Yeah. And again, they don't have the they don't have the privilege of being far away from the war. They're seeing and, and you you see that at the very beginning of both movies um, where they notice the smoke is really close. And I think in the and then this also circles back to a great point that we wanted to bring up um, in the original. You have the black enslaved person saying the smoke is really close in the Coppola version. It, you just sort of see it. there's just a few seconds of that frame. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, in, so the Coppola version got quite a, a lot of criticism. I mean, Sophia Coppola, I think when it came out, people were kind of looking at her career in general. Yeah. Um, so it's both the criticism of the movie, but also I think of Coppola's career, yeah. um, as being, you know, in the 71 version, you have one black character who's an enslaved woman. Um, and in the 17 version, the Coppola version, there are no black characters. Mm-hmm. Um, the girl who finds uh, Colin Farrell is just like, oh, they all ran away. No, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I remember. And so you just like demiss out a hand. And when asked about that, Coppola said something to the effects of, um, you know, lots of young women watch my films and I didn't want to portray, um, an African-American, a black person like that. Um, I knew it wouldn't do justice. Um, so and then people drew like, so you removed black people from the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it it not totally makes sense. It doesn't totally make sense, but I do, and I know I I sent this to you, so I'm just gonna go into it. Um, but I do love. There's a critic I love, Angelica Jade, Angelica Jade Bastian, um, who writes for Vulture, and her review of the Beguiled was really interesting because it's first of all like she brings up the point that like, is Sophia Coppola the person you're looking to for representation? Um, but but Coppola's, all all of her work have been set on, centered around sad white women. Yeah. That is what she makes. She has a very myopic, um, film view. Yeah. But in doing so probably unintentionally, um, it really becomes a statement of the, inherent poison the inherent danger of this kind of white femininity yeah um and and worldview and and some of it obviously is intentional like nicole kidman kristen dunce and Elle fanning are the blondest whitest people (laughs) in the world and everyone looks really really kind of ghostly in it yeah. right they're always yeah. in their might they you know they're meant to give off sort of an eeriness yeah um something's wrong uh but it becomes i mean i think if you read it that way it does become the statement on white feminine on white femininity yeah and um how it's used yeah in a racist society yeah uh-huh. And I thought it was great. Anyways, anyone should read that article. <laughs> She's the best. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So it's also interesting that um, comparing and contrasting the, this moment in Greta Gerwig's Little Women of mm. Laura Dern being like the guilty white woman, <laughs> the guilty, the, the white guilt and specifically white feminine guilt in Little Women is clearly cringe and awful. 
And okay. then you have, um, and then you have Sofia Coppola uh, erasing the story of black people. And I think that I, I think that it's probably just more important to, um, it's important to point out the absence and the erasure of black people since again that's what the war was about exactly. um and but Sofia Coppola is a white woman and she she is going to tell that story about white femininity and the dangerous the danger of white womanhood because that is absolutely real and it would have just been totally disingenuous I don't know it's too it's two extremes you if the erasure of black of black people and then this like superficial guilt right white guilt um it's just where yeah it, it's um those are two ends of the spectrum I think right and I think I think the article comes to that conclusion too of like you don't want Sofia Coppola telling that story she's yeah, not gonna no. do a good job no. it's gonna be like that inclusion in the Greta Gerwig it's it's not gonna make sense mm-hmm. you know like it it's gonna be disingenuous mm-hmm. um instead what you want is people giving opportunities and money to make that film exactly. that will make do a good job of it yeah um anyways <laughs> all to say is that i do think th- that it's a really interesting reading of the beguiled as as morphing into the southern gothic tale as versus like gone with the wind mm-hmm. where it really lays kind of bare um the horror of that mm-hmm. of that society yeah and uh and again and there's it's the the false accusation of sexual assault is um as in so in the beguiled there's um sort of a love triangle two women in particular the uh, kirsten dunst or well, i shouldn't talk about <laughs> the actresses since there's like two um two versions of the film but there's there are two characters one of the student one student and one um like secondary teacher both have a crush on the guy, the soldier McBurney, and uh, um, he ends up emotionally he m- emotionally manipulates the teacher, but then ends up sleeping with uh, the student, and the teacher finds them, pushes him down the stairs, and then there's um, which exacerbates his injury that he came in with, and then and then the te- Edwina, the teacher, says. Um, he was like, or is it the student who says, I think the student him? says, okay, yeah, that yeah. he forced himself on her. Yeah. Um, and that is like, uh, that the false accusation is really also gets at this, like women at feeling out of a desperate women feel a desperation to protect themselves. And, um, uh, and so, and to protect themselves against like whatever they feel are the repercussions of their action is. And so, mm-hmm. and so it's just like, okay, I'm just going to call him a rapist because that's my last sort of line of defense. And, um, and it is evil to get, and it's, it's a prideful, it's also a prideful thing to not want to admit that you have engaged in, um, in a sexual fantasy and then right. and to and to blame the man kind of thing and um that's yeah 
Yeah, I think again, yeah, it is still kind of the same also like the danger of that that type of very protected cloistered white femininity in which you if you do lay those claims they can be explosive. Also at the same time, those threats are really real to those women. It is like any guy could come in there and take advantage of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and they're very nervous about that and mm-hmm. I think in cold mountain um that also is the case right like that seems to be an ever-present fear it could happen at any time yes and it can and then it's just like but then yeah it's it's so i just i really loved that i do love that storyline because uh, the beguiled particular um i love the the plot of the beguiled because it's so uh tense Mm. because it is a threat and then you undermine that threat by making a false accusation. Like, you know, it's um, the crying wolf thing. Right. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, and then they cut off his leg. Spoiler. <laughs> Oops. Well, I guess I should have said spoiler before I said the spoiler. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, continuing on the spoiler line. Oh my gosh, this is the like fifth thing i've watched recently that involves poisonous mushrooms i know i know intentionally or not mm-hmm. oh my god that was <laughs> i like how <laughs> it's like all recently too i was like what is the mushrooms are in the air why is this a plot device everywhere <laughs> everywhere i love how i knew exactly what you were talking about um <laughs> um i know i i struggle oh when I, when I recommend the Phantom Thread to people, I always, I'm like, I really want to give it away. I really want to. Yeah. The Beguiled keeps spiraling too. It's really cool. It's just a great, it is a great story. Truly. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot there. And again, yeah, there's also like a really rich atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> um, the last, we were just so cryptic in the, <laughs> <laughs> like the cutting <laughs> The cutting off of the leg is not actually the biggest spoiler of the beguiled and right. mushrooms play a role, but we, <laughs> we indirectly referenced phantom thread. <laughs> that was really spirally. Weird. He loves mushrooms on the beguiled. He just loves those mushrooms. <laughs> oh my God. Um, yeah, it's, uh, the horror Anyway, I don't have thoughts, uh, smooth brain, <laughs> but I guess, do we, do you have any other thoughts on the beguiled before we move on to our finale? No, I have no thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> We've exhausted thoughts. Um, uh, yeah, that's exhausted is exactly how I felt after this like marathon that I did. Um, like, but, I lived through the Civil War too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, this honestly, okay, I do, I do think that 1994 Little Women is one of the perfect movies. I did love The Beguiled, but truly, in this uh, cinema syllabus, Cold Mountain was probably my favorite to watch in this lineup. Yeah, um, I agree. And maybe it's because I hadn't seen it before. Um, oh, really? Yeah never seen it. I had seen it so long ago that I actually misremembered a lot of the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, like I thought she was married to Jude Law, um, which she isn't yeah. at the start. <laughs> she is not. Um, yeah, there's just a lot that I had 
forgotten about it yeah. and um it was really nice to rewatch it was it's a really good movie yeah it's it was um it was it was great and i i think i love epic period war pieces i oh my god <laughs> well cuz like immediately <laughs> um i think i just like this uh I like the storytelling and, and like this richness. There's like this thing about, there's something about like learning about the his, the <laughs> the civil war. You know, everybody knows the story of the civil war. Everybody knows the outcomes. You have to, you're tested on it constantly in school. And so then the, the function of these movies retelling the story is like the personal, the very personal vignettes mm-hmm. or the personal stories behind them. And I love that. Um, again, this like portrayal of what life was like at the time kind of thing. Um, the Civil War, everybody knows it, but you don't know about the individuals who lived through it kind of thing. Um, <laughs> it's like the major selling point. And um, and it feels like, I mean, Gone with the Wind definitely sets a big precedent for that, like building up this like myth of a, surrounding mm-hmm. a major historical event. Um, but it's a little bit gone with the wind is superficial because it's like playing with cinema because it's one of the first like colorized films. Whereas like you with later movies, you're not so much playing with the medium. You're like actually playing with the story anyway. Um, but cold mountain, I loved it. I really, really loved it. I thought that it was so gory and gross Yeah, I said this to you. It like gives Saving Private Ryan a run for its money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think one really great thing about the movie is that there is no nobility in this war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like there is nothing redeemable about the Confederacy at this war. It is gross. It is like soul poisoning. Uh-huh um for jude law uh-huh and yeah like in cold mountain this is told from a rural mountain town um where everyone's pretty poor except for nicole kitsman's family <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> um who like just came to town mm-hmm. but they're and all the men there are like dung-ho for the war even though they don't seemingly know what it's even about right right um, they just want the heroicism right there's also like very few black people in this um movie um but i do wonder if that is to be like look at how many people bought into this idea of nationalism for the south with having no real idea who they were fighting for which is rich slave owning southerners um or a benefit to themselves just a horror like it is just a horror and yeah and jude law's character becomes a deserter um after doing this like he's sort of like the hatchet man you know like yeah it's just yeah it's brutal and and you get the sense too that like um clearly there's like a great enthusiasm uh when the cold mountain the town um gets the word that everybody, all the boys, the men are being drafted into war. And there's, um, there's an enthusiasm about it. And you get the sense that like, they have this enthusiasm because of intense propaganda around the um, building up of the conflict. And um, you have the chance to die for your country or whatever. And then, um, 
that as the war is going on and there are people who are who don't want to be fighting because they see how brutal it is and how terrible it is um then it's just the enforcement of the war is just pure purely by these evil brutal mercenaries who are just finding people and killing them as a way of deterring people from deserting from further deserting um and yeah there's the great line like there's no glorification at all it is the perfect opposite to gone with the wind because there's no glorification on for either side again like you can sort of tell that the south is um like the war of northern aggression but there's also like i mean there's there's uh, animosity toward the north but then there's also like this understand again you have these people who are forcing you to remain in the confederate army and so there's an animosity toward that too an animosity mm-hmm. toward the the enforcement um and there's that great line that renee zellweger says where she says these people complain about the weather they make they uh, or oh I, I would never be able to i can't remember the yeah, line. yeah so. i know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> but it. she's basically saying like these people specifically make the conditions so bad and then go out and participate in these conditions and then say oh shit it's horrible right (laughs) yeah it's like you made the weather and then you're like surprised that it's raining yes okay you know like thank you (laughs) (laughs) I love Renee Zellweger's character yes me too she's very good um you know I miss Renee I miss her too Uh, I mean she was she just got an Oscar I don't know why I'm acting like she doesn't act anymore but this era of Renee was yeah she was really like on a roll yeah um yeah I mean the villain of the movie is the home guard like this confederacy roundup gang Mm -hmm. and they're evil Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. it's not like you barely see the union soldiers Mm -hmm. it's really these guys are the villains Mm -hmm. Um, they're gross, they're rapists, they're liars, um, and murderers. they're slaughterers. Yeah, yeah. murderers. And um, and there's it's an indictment on the war too. Mm-hmm. Like the war is also the villain. And um, right. I found that it was a very, you know, it made me think of Hannah Arendt. <laughs> and like <laughs> Hannah Arendt had this big indictment on like sh- Hannah Arendt wrote Eichmann in Jerusalem, which was a... Um, series of articles about Hermann Eichmann's trial after World War II that became a novel um, or not, not a book. <laughs> it's, it's not fiction. Um, and Hannah Arendt's whole take on World War II and the horrors of World War II is that you can't, like there is no punishment that's gonna be good enough for a Nazi mm-hmm. because first of all, this Nazi was um, mindless and and brainless and was just doing what he was told that's the whole banality of evil and you get that in cold mountain too it's a really um it's a banality of evil take um that they that these the the egregore of the war the civil war is the thing that is controlling infiltrating everybody's personal lives and it and it it takes its ugliest form with these people who are just bandits out hunting for deserters um, mm-hmm. and, and killing people mindlessly. Um, yeah. And I also, I love that the preacher is an awful character. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh my God. That is the so thing good. I forgot. Yeah. The cast of this movie yeah. is incredible. And yeah. they're coming out of the woodwork. Like, I just know. Natalie Portman like- pops out. <laughs> <laughs> what? You're in this movie? 
<laughs> incredible. Incredible. Yeah. And what is the the actress who plays Sally? It's also someone. Sally. But the one who gets her hands crushed. And her husband dies and she goes mute. Oh, 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 oh. Um <laughs> the girl from Saved is in it for about five seconds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, okay, I'm gonna look this up. Kathy Baker. She I'm surprised that you don't recognize or you didn't um, yeah. Maybe she's in what. a lot of um maybe she's in a she's inside her house rules. Edward, she's in Edward Scissorhands. She's the mom in Edward Scissorhands. Oh yes, yes. Okay, okay, okay. She's wow. like one of those actresses. She's like one of those it's actresses. Everything. Yeah, who's, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, everybody, the casting is um so great. And but yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of the greatest actors of all time, and tragic. And um, and but I I love that that um also didn't excuse religion, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he that portrayal of that character of a priest or a preacher at that time is probably extremely accurate. I'm sure most Southern yeah. reverends behaved that way where he he um is this probably he impregnates an enslaved person um a black woman who is um that he owns and probably presumably rapes her and tries to kill her as a way of solving yeah. the problem um and Jude Law's character intervenes but then but then Jude Law's character gets wrapped up in this preacher's um, fugitivity and, um, continues. I was thinking about, oh my God, I was, you know what? I also thought that cold mountain is because it was a book too. And, um, originally, and it is the odyssey. Yeah. That's exactly. (laughs) I was like, Jude law is on the odyssey. Yeah. It's a sadder version of the odyssey, (laughs) but it is the odyssey where he's like, you know, Nicole Kidman spending off creepy suitors um and has to learn to make her own way at home meanwhile Jude Law it's encountering pitfall after pitfall after he's deserted the confederacy and is trying to make his way back to cold mountain and it is like he runs into like the lonely widow uh <laughs> he runs into this entrapment like he gets trapped with Philip Seymour Hoffman yeah. um at this house and they give him over to the home guard again and like it's just like a series of running. Yeah. And a journey. And then you also, but it, but it has a lot more depth because, well, because it's showing Nicole Kidman's side of the story as well, like what she's doing while she's waiting at home. But then there's also this, like, um, there's the big question. The characters are asking themselves these questions of like Jude Law keeps going because he has this fantasy of this woman who he barely even knows and they keep yeah. saying that they're both like, why are we both so motivated by each other? <laughs> like in their letters to one another that, d- that don't necessarily, they're not writing the letters necessarily for, for them to be received and read, but as a way of like keeping hope alive as a way of like self-reflection or a method of self-reflection. And yeah, you have this question of why am I even keeping going? Keep Why am I keeping on when I don't really mm-hmm. know if uh, Nicole Kimmon doesn't know that he'll survive, he doesn't know that she'll wait for him. 
all this stuff. Um, oh my God, Donald Sutherland also in this. Sorry, whoa. Uh. <laughs> it's, it is like murderer's row. It is wild. And they're in uh, yeah. it for like five minutes. Yeah, yeah, that's great. But um, but I do, I did love it. And then I um, sort of, well, it's, it's interesting. It's nice. This is the thing that made me have the, uh, contributes to my thought about cottagecore and homesteading and the value of homesteading. Um, Renee Zellweger's character comes in because Nicole Kidman yet yeah, is not married, um, does not have, her father dies. And so she loses a lot of her family wealth. Renee Zellweger comes in to help her like learn how to cook, <laughs> learn how to grow food. And, um, and you get a sense of like the, the female empowerment, mm. but it's a, it's a more, it's a truer representation of female empowerment because it's just like these women, the war is happening literally on home soil, like just like a few miles away. Um, these, and, and even worse than the threat of the war and the violence of the war being in their backyard is, is these, um, the home guard is a worse threat. And so you just have to, like a woman has to make her way. And I love that it's Renee Zellweger who knows things like, how to skin a turkey and how to grow and and Renee Zellweger says like I have a vision for that farm I'm going to turn that farm into something and yeah it, that is the true that yes every that's why everybody should be cottage court <laughs> <laughs> because you have to be able to know how to make your way in the event of catastrophe and mass death Bethany is a survivalist <laughs> <laughs> sorry but yeah, actually, the, it was a nice, I mean, for a lot part, of, a lot of it, I think you said this, it's like, it's Nicole and Renee against the world, which <laughs> was great. Like, and they do, like, Nicole is a Southern belle who yeah. learns to fend for herself. Um, honestly, some of it, I was like, dude, don't come home. You yeah, know, like, yeah. We're good. And spoiler, he doesn't come home. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he almost does doesn't quite make it <laughs> and yeah I don't know it was it it is like and they both have like a lot of hope for that farm Renee in particular like yeah. has set her dreams on being able to make something of that farm yeah um which I don't know it, it's just like you don't see a lot of uh women characters like that I yeah. think yeah for sure and it's not like a caricature or like over the top or something like that um she's also really funny and i forgot last actor shout out her dad is played by brendan gleason yeah that was oh. great and jack white is in this movie <laughs> jack white he's the 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 dumb musician uh georgia he's the like oh georgia the, yeah, the, yeah yeah pale with the dark hair but yeah who like renee falls in love with <laughs> it's a crazy cast but there but the dude the dumb musician yeah is someone um, that he's I'm in a bunch out. of stuff yeah he's in uh i know that he is in remember the titans um <laughs> <laughs> he's yeah he's he's another one of those actors that was just like in everything but um 
the other funny thing that what as I was making my way through this movie and I was just like things there's so many weird little details where I was just like wow it really has it all um like when Nicole Kidman goes to Sally Swanger's well and she like looks down it with a mirror to like tell her future that was a great like nod to I mean spiritualism was um Mm. uh this like sort of magical um magical religion spiritualism had a huge influence over the country at that time um and so she has this like oh I'm gonna tell the future by looking into Sally Swinger's well kind of thing and then you also have like the sort of like uh, um lesbianic moment between Renee and Nicole and like um you know they are like partners together or whatever um so yeah it just it really it, the story has everything and and it definitely is an odyssey yeah yeah and I I love just coming back to the that point you brought up where it's like Jude Law and Nicole Kidman barely know each other mm-hmm. and they do become even though both of the things they're going through are horrific and very real in their personal journeys they become fantasies yeah to one another to the point where in the movie you're like did they actually find each other like it almost yeah. feels like and it's an imagined reunion um yeah well but I guess what makes it not an imagined reunion is she has this kid right <laughs> but it feels like it's <laughs> I would have rather it have been a total fantasy but um that would have been cool that would have been cool yeah. um also like <laughs> I just thought of this to your point about being like, oh no, Bethany is a survivalist, a cottage core survivalist now. <laughs> Cause like, I did think there's, there's a scene where Nicole Kimmon shoots a Turkey and that's like the, mm-hmm. I guess, to measure the progress of Nicole Kimmon's character is like, she finally, she can hunt and um, she can provide for herself kind of thing. And I was just like, wow, vibes. <laughs> I- <laughs> you sent me three photos of Nicole Kidman aiming a gun at a Turkey. <laughs> but it was, it's a great, like, yeah, she can provide for herself. She has finally made this, um, uh, she's made her own journey. Mm-hmm. Like that's her, that's her sort of the journey into, into selfhood, like a well, well-rounded selfhood. And that's also why I loved Cold Mountain too, is because like, again, we talk about this sad wife theme and, um, this season in particular on the civil war and all of these movies that we've talked about in this, or sorry, this episode in particular, all of these movies that we've talked about, the women are not there to prop up the story of men. Um, That is a really, really cool thing um, that sort of ties it all together. Um, And, but it's mostly in cold mountain because like little women, it's, it's definitely about the women and it's definitely about their story, but the war is a secondary plot. The beguiled mm. is like the nefariousness of women. Gone with the wind is like this bitch just fully is just there. Like the, all of the characters it's are just, just this bitch. <laughs> <laughs> this bitch just happens to be in the middle of the Civil War. <laughs> but um, but in Cold Mountain, it's as much about uh the selfhood, the growing selfhood of of women, and um. And there's like a, I found my, I think that like her having the child and Renee Zellweger also having a kid with Georgia, like, I think that I, I feel like if I had watched it, like 
years ago or whatever, I would have thought it was corny, like a corny ending. And also again, this like, that's just, you're just giving into the gender roles kind of thing. However, I, I don't necessarily have that take. It seems, again, it seems like this, um, it, first of all, it's not all about them having kids. That's just the conclusion at the very end. Um, it, uh, it also, I, I appreciate it as the conclusion of this story of them like coming into themselves and being totally self-sufficient. Nicole Kidman is self-sufficient enough to be able to raise a child. And she mm-hmm. has this, and she can create this, um, you know, they can live in the reconstruction era post-Civil War Reconstruction era, and they don't, they're not relying on any kind of, like, myth about, like, glorifying the Confederacy. Um, They, they lived through horrendous, brutal tragedy, and they had to make it on their, and they had to make it on their own, and presumably they will bring, like, raise children to be better. Right. They're hope it's a hopeful ending. Um, there's like hope for the future, even with like Jude Law, Nicole Kidman's love for life dead. (laughs) Right. Like even with him dead, she's still very hopeful. She's happy. Uh She has family and she's able to sustain them, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. It's a promising future rather than, um, despairing Mm -hmm. on what they lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> it's good. It's good. After I streamed it, Amazon was like, "Since you watched this, you might also enjoy." And then it imme- it recommended Last of the Mohicans, and I was like, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to, um, not listening to, I guess watching Ken Burns Civil War. I, oh. I was trying to be a hero there, but I just <laughs> kept falling asleep. Ken Burns is the original ASMR artist. He <laughs> really is. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. Damn. That's big. Yeah. We didn't get very far. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, an epic, epic thing. I mean, yeah. And, and truly it's yeah. So proximal. And there was um, something different about I don't know, even the, the, even though it was so trad and so, and we, we look at those times as being so backwards or whatever, like the country of America had progressed a lot. Like it was a quite liberal country to be, to first of all, be created in this radicalization of, um, like we're going to break away from the monarchy and then you have the American revolution, but like the American revolution is still happening at a time where there's so many values of like what a woman should be doing, whatever, whatever. But the country, like after that, the country like made a huge progression into like, you really get the sense that during the civil war, like women are, women have been educated. Like there have been women's schools Mm -hmm. Um, or yeah, like women were seen as like valuable uh, contributors to society so they were being educated and like and so so then when when the war breaks out they really have have an occasion to rise to or something or like they're seen as viable I don't know yeah no I there's more room Mm -hmm. for a story about just women yeah not how women yeah as you said prop up the legacy of a man like we were talking about in the American Revolution yeah yeah 
and Penelope, Clytemnestra, are also don't have their own characterizations. Right. They are wife of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's their title. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had one more thought. Shoot. Mm. Oh, no. Time is running nigh. <laughs> this was an epic episode. It was very long. <laughs> <laughs> just can't cover the civil war without getting into it and there's just so much um media about it yeah. it's kind of wild it really really is it truly yeah an obsession i yes. would say well uh thanks for listening <laughs> congrats if you made it through just kidding we know all of our listeners are so devoted you definitely mm-hmm. listen to all of it <laughs> Um, yeah, this was, this was great. And I suggest everybody watch all these movies. Yeah. We'll provide a list too. (laughs) (laughs) If you did fast forward through this. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Um, thanks a lot, Mary. Thank you, Bethany. (laughs) Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.